series of sermons um, uh, on famous 20th century Christians. And of the five that we've looked at so far to date, uh, Billy Graham, whom we're talking about today, uh, Billy Graham is undoubtedly the most famous of all. Um, however, I'm really a little bit uncomfortable with the word famous. You, you, you may have heard me say, you know, introducing the title of famous 20th century Christians or famous Christians of the 20th century, you, know, you might have heard me say, for want of a better title. Um, and that's because I am uncomfortable with the word famous. Famous suggests... Uh, especially good. Um, and indeed, uh, if I was talking about famous Grand Prix racing car drivers of the 20th century, then they would be famously good racing car. Otherwise, we wouldn't have heard of them. Uh, but it's not, it's not like that with us as Christians, is it? Uh, I, I mean, God doesn't, God doesn't require of us that we're successful or significant or influential. Um, what he asks of us is that we're faithful and uh, that we're loving and I imagine that uh, the greatest acts of loving faithfulness, I'm sure it will turn out to be so, that the greatest acts of loving faithfulness that the world has ever seen since Jesus will be, turn out to be done by people that we've never heard of, acting in total obscurity. Uh, so there's, uh, you know, just, just for us to think carefully about the word famous for a moment. Also, of course, in this series of looking at famous Christians, we are departing from our usual work on a Sunday morning, which is to study the scriptures together and for me to preach and teach the Bible. We're departing from that briefly because occasionally looking at significant and well-known Christians from ages past, it is a worthwhile thing to do. Um, in the words of the prayer book, in order that we might praise God for all his servants whose lives have honored Christ, and in also that we can uh, pray in the words of the prayer book, Father, please encourage us by their example so that we may run with perseverance the, the, life, the race that lies before us and share with them the fullness of joy in your kingdom. So there's just a little bit of an explanation as to what we've been doing and why, but let's turn back today to Billy Graham, who was Billy Graham? Well, in a nutshell, <clears throat> Billy Graham was a famous itinerant or traveling evangelist who uh, actually died quite recently. He died on the 21st of February, 2018, at the age of 99 and a half. Uh, he was born, uh, obviously, in 1918 in North Carolina. And he was an ordained minister in one of America's biggest denominations, the Southern Baptists. As a preacher, he became internationally famous as a traveling evangelist in, by the, the late 1940s. And he preached the gospel by way of public speaking engagements, open air or in halls or in stadia or in churches. And these events were called rallies or crusades. And he also preached by way of broadcasts on the radio and telecasts on television. Across his lifetime, several billion people heard him speak. An estimated 3.2 million people came to faith in Jesus Christ through his rallies alone. Exactly how many people came to faith in Jesus through his total ministry, that is including his telecasts and his broadcasts, the exact number we'll never know uh, before Christ comes. 
uh, but must have been many millions of people. Um, it would be difficult to overestimate Billy Graham's impact on the global church, and it would be difficult to overestimate his impact on us as a nation as well. And I will say more about that later. Uh, Graham's preaching was appreciated by many for several reasons. But one reason was that he just preached the gospel. He just talked about what it means to become a Christian and who Jesus is. He steered clear of all of the things that denominations tend to squabble and bicker and disagree about. And he encouraged new converts simply to attend their local church. He wasn't pushing for this denomination or that denomination. In fact, he encouraged people to attend either Protestant or Roman Catholic churches, whatever church was local and they felt comfortable with. And so for those reasons, he was in, within the global church, he was pretty much universally appreciated. Not, not entirely, but, but, but pretty close. Uh, particularly in, in the U.S., in his homeland, um, Graham was enormously admired and respected. Um, uh, An historian of religion, uh, Grant Wacker, wrote that by the mid-1960s, Bill, Billy Graham had become, in the U.S., the great legitimator. Um, to quote Wacker at, at length, quote, By then, Billy Graham's presence conferred status on presidents, acceptability on wars, shame on racial prejudice, desirability on decency, dishonor on indecency, and prestige on civic events. He was the great legitimator, unquote. Um, and I'm not sure if it was some kind of official position or not, but he was um, recognized as the spiritual advisor um, to every U.S. president from Harry S. Truman to Barack Obama. Um, he was their personal chaplain. Truman, Eisenhower, Kennedy, Johnson, Nixon, Ford, Carter, Reagan, Bush Sr., Clinton, Bush Jr., and Obama. And indeed, he was close friends with Eisenhower, Johnson, and Nixon. Again, in the U.S., um, his legacy um, was very particularly strong because of his early and passionate solidarity with Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, whom he invited to share his pulpit uh, in 1957 on a 16-week ministry tour of New York City. Um, in terms of honors and awards, uh, Billy Graham has received a vast and bewildering array of them, including um, a knighthood from Queen Elizabeth II and the Presidential Medal of Freedom, Freedom from Ronald Reagan. And he's made the Gallup Poll's most admired man list 61 times. Um, that's probably more than Sean Connery. Um, <clears throat> without question, he has been one of the most admired and respected people of the last 100 years. And he's almost entirely dodged scandal. Um, there were indeed some ill-advised words about Muslims said to Nixon in the, in the 70s, sentiments he later apologized for. But all in all, he was widely acknowledged to be a man of integrity. So where did Billy Graham come from? Um, well, he was the eldest of four children, a modest dairy farming family in a small town community of North Carolina, which is a southern state 
of the U.S. His family was devout and church-going. As a child, he loved adventure stories and was particularly fond of Tarzan. He loved to climb trees and swing from limb to limb and scare the heck out of passers-by by suddenly giving the Tarzan yodel, the Tarzan yell, very loudly and unexpectedly from the top of a tree. This, his dad reckons, was evidence of God's call on his life to ministry from an early age. <clears throat> his ability to scare the heck out of locals by yelling at them loudly. He was turned down for membership in his local uh, youth group for being too worldly. But as a 16-year-old, he went to a, to a revivalist tent meeting where the traveling evangelist Mordecai Ham, a delightfully ironic name, <clears throat> Mordecai Ham was the preacher. And it was at this rally that Graham says he was converted. Um, well, Graham would have grown up in a world where segregation was taken for granted. He would have grown up in a world where literally everyone went to church on Sunday morning. Um, Southern culture in the U.S. is still like that. To, to not go to church, to not have a church, is very unusual and deeply suspicious. It's frowned upon. Um, Helen uh, here has her own stories. She's told me about her own stories of encountering that culture for herself in Texas when she's visited her son Sam there. So in a context where everybody goes to church, um, and so everybody is saying, oh yes, I'm a Christian, what does it mean to really follow Jesus and to know him as your Lord and Savior? Well, um, I guess out of that culture sprang revivalist tent meeting culture um, where you would have regularly, maybe annually, you'd have a revival. Itinerant evangelists um, would, would travel around preaching the gospel and many of them could become quite famous. Um, they set up tea, uh, tents or marquees for the staging of, of rallies or crusades or revival meetings. Now, in our culture, for me, um, you know, as a pastor talking to other pastors and praying and praying with other Christians, you know, we might talk about how we're praying for revival in Perth, which of course we are. We're praying for revival in Perth. And what would that look like? What would that mean? What do we mean when we say that? Well, we're, we're referring to something that is very rare in history, but does happen. When it happens, it tends to be pretty famous. Um, a revival, as far as I'm concerned, is, is something that God and God only can do. Um, it's something that I may or may not see in my lifetime. It's, um, it's a rare outpouring of the Holy Spirit, uh, concurrent with mass conversions, astonishing church growth, signs, wonders, miracles, especially healings, deep, profound repentance, often public confessions, and radical social change. If, for example, revival came to Perth here, we might see, in a very short space of time, drug use and prostitution essentially disappear. Um, so that's what I mean when I'm saying I'm praying for revival in Perth. But if I said that to a southerner in the US, they might reply with, oh yeah, sure, we, we have one of those every year in May down in Farmer George's Bottom Meadow. Because they'd be, they'd be thinking about something that culturally is, is an important part of their culture, that is staged. Revivalist meetings, crusades, rallies. <clears throat> 
including various preachers, some visiting, some local. The opportunity for the Christian community to get spiritually fed or challenged or built up in, in a way that probably is not altogether all that possible week by week at your local church, which might be small, parochial, narrow-minded and moralistic. Um, and such meetings might serve the local Christian community, perhaps in an analogous way to how um, in WA Scripture Union Beach Missions feed and encourage remote area Christian communities here in places like Bremer Bay and Chains Beach. Um, otherwise, that kind of, the, the kind of culture I'm attempting to describe, that southern revivalist tent-meeting culture, it's actually quite alien to Australian culture, and we tend to therefore be quite suspicious of it. In the 1950s, American preachers didn't do well in Australia. Just before Billy Graham came here for the first time, um, a, a man, um, Oral Roberts, another delightfully ironic name, Oral Roberts, uh, the preacher, um, highly respected man in the U.S. There's a university named after him. He brought his own big tent to Melbourne, but he rolled it up and he went home before preaching a single sermon after the tent was attacked by stink bombs. Um, you know, so that culture doesn't necessarily do well here down under. Anyway, Billy, he gave his life to the Lord at 16 years of age. After high school, he went to college where he studied anthropology. Even while at college, his gift for public speaking drew attention. Um, at one point in his college years, when he was struggling and thinking of withdrawing and just quitting, his college principal counseled him not, not to give up on a college education, not, not to quit his studies. Uh, the principal said, at best, you could amount to some poor country Baptist preacher somewhere out there in the sticks, but you have a voice, you have a voice that pulls. God can use a voice like that. He can use it mightily, unquote. So a gift, people were aware of a gift. And after college, Graham was briefly involved in pastoring various churches. But in 1947, he was hired by the newly formed organization Youth for Christ as a traveling evangelist. His ability to draw crowds was immediately noticed. In 1949, a revival tent meeting was scheduled for Los Angeles in which uh, Turkish, uh, Turkish tent, circus tents were erected in a parking lot, um, and the event lasted for eight weeks, five weeks longer than was scheduled, and attracted nationwide media coverage. From that point on, so to speak, it was on. And over the next 56 years, Billy Graham conducted more than 400 rallies, or crusades as they were then known, in 185 countries on six continents. And that included coming to Australia three times in 1959, in 1968, and in 1979. Each occasion brought significant growth to the church in Australia and significant cultural change to us as a nation as well. But without question, it was the 1959 visit that was the most significant of the three. In 1959, Billy Graham spent four months in Australia and New Zealand. By this time, Billy Graham was already a household name, 
by virtue of astonishing and huge public meetings in Los Angeles, London, and New York. In Sydney, 600 Protestant um, clergy and church leaders met to discuss the prospect of him coming to Australia. And the official invitation was extended through the Anglican Archbishop of Sydney, Bishop Mowell. Um, to quote the statistics, I'm going to read at length an article I found online by Carl uh, Face of Olive Tree Media. Carl writes, <clears throat> Once the crusade meeting started, the statistics continued to be off the dial with massive crowd numbers and inquiry responses. There were 114 meetings in 106 days across Australia and New Zealand. Meetings were held in Melbourne, Hobart, Launceston, Auckland, Wellington, Christchurch, Perth, Adelaide, Brisbane, and Sydney. To gain an understanding of the interest in these crusade meetings, the Melbourne story gives a clear picture. The meetings started at the moderately-sized West Melbourne Stadium, which held 7,500 people. When 10,000 turned out, they realized the venue was hopelessly inadequate. So five days later, they moved to the Sydney Meyer Music Bowl. On the first night at this new venue, 25,000 people attended. This grew to 70,000 on the Sunday afternoon. Sadly, due to the yearly Moomba Festival, the crusade meetings had to be moved again, this time to the less than desirable agricultural showground. Even with a very poor venue and unseasonable rain and cold weather, the nine meetings had attendances varying from 18,000 to 25,000 people. The final event of the Melbourne Crusades turned out to be a history-making event. It was held at the Melbourne Cricket Ground with a staggering 143,000 people attending. To this day, that record still stands... As the, as the biggest crowd ever to assemble at the iconic MCG. The Melbourne story was repeated across the country. The, Sydney, uh, the final Sydney meeting was an event held side by side at two venues, the Melbourne Cricket Ground, sorry, the Sydney Cricket Ground and the Royal Agricultural Showgrounds. Between these two venues, there was an estimated attendance of 150,000 people the overall attendance of all meetings was 3 million. Many thousands more heard Graham preach on radio, television, or in cinemas. They read about him on the front page of all the metropolitan newspapers. Landlines relayed over 3,000 services to over 400 remote and regional uh, communities throughout Australia. Unquote. Well, um, the number of people who came forward at all of those meetings to receive Jesus as their Lord and Savior is estimated uh, at conservatively at 146,000 people. Um, a number of churches had several hundred new believers to cope with. And one church in particular had to hire more staff to cope with the number of converts from just one rally. Historians have correlated a number of social changes that appear, that appear to be directly related to Billy Graham's 1959 Australia Crusade. And those uh, social trends include, firstly, a 10% drop in the national level of alcoholism. Secondly, a sudden stalling in the otherwise rising rate 
of extramarital births. Businesses recorded an epidemic of bad debt repayment. In Sydney, there was a 50% reduction in alcohol-related crime. Sales of Bibles trebled in all capital cities. Scripture Union membership doubled. And more college in Sydney, the, the Bible college, uh, more college in Sydney had record student um, registrations. In 1961, they had a staggering 104 new students wanting to study the Bible and train for ministry. I imagine, I don't know for more, more college, it's particular statistics, I trained at Ridley College in Melbourne. Um, for Ridley, a good year would be maybe 20 or 30, a good year, um, new students. They had, in 1961, 104 new students wanting to train for ministry. In that year... Every female student at Moore College had either been involved or was converted at a Billy Graham crusade. Yet, and nevertheless, these statistics cannot do justice when, you know, to, to what, what that really means for Australia. Uh, spiritually, of course, we know that there is more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who do not need to repent. But in terms of on the ground, what that would have looked like, the, the ended misery and the prevented misery um, that God wrought, that God blessed us with in changing our individual and our corporate lives together, um, it's just unimaginable. An unimaginable amount of suffering either ended or prevented um, be, because of, of that um, 1959 um, uh, visit. It's as close as we as a nation have ever got to revival. Um, in my own experience, I still regularly hear, regularly hear from lay Christians and from ordained ministers, things like, oh, I was converted at a Billy Graham uh, rally, or my parents were converted by Billy Graham. Hear that routinely. And there are any number of stories associated with the rallies like this one. One man who came forward at a rally to receive Christ had stolen a large sum of money from the bank where he worked. As soon as he could, he confessed his crime to his manager and offered to pay back everything. Instead of firing him or calling the police, the bank manager let him keep his job and went himself to the very next Billy Graham crusade to find out what had happened to him. And he too gave his life to Jesus Christ. How was it that Billy Graham had such authority? Well, culturally, there were many reasons. Um, um, one columnist, uh, you know, one, one uh, um, newspaperman, Eric Baum, wrote at the time, what is the difference between Dr. Billy Graham and some of our local hot gospelers? He insults no one, he exhorts all. His heart of wondrous sympathy beats in his face. And I, as an infidel, but a convinced theist, will not hear a word against him. I personally cannot accept all he preaches, but that does not debar me from thanking him for coming to Australia. Um, it's, that's kind of an extraordinary testimony. Um, um, well, one of the things uh, that I have noticed um, as I've listened to testimonies or read testimonies online in describing what happened to people 
at these, at these rallies, again and again and again, you hear phrases like, it was as though God was talking to me. It was as though God was speaking to me. Um, of course, today, there are any number of Billy Graham's sermons available online on YouTube, for example. You can watch him for yourself. Um, as an evangelist, he doesn't preach in the way that a pastor teacher uh, uh, preaches. Um, and that's to be expected. Um, an evangelistic sermon, that is one which seeks to explain who Jesus is and what he has done, that seeks to convert the unconverted, that type of sermon is quite a different thing to what we usually attend to here at church. Um, pastor teachers seek to preach and teach the whole counsel of God. Uh, that is to say, to put it simply, to teach the whole Bible. But if you watch any of his sermons online, especially from 1959, you might notice a few things, including, for example, the fact that he shouts a lot. In fact, he shouts almost continuously. I would estimate that 90% of what he says, he says shouting. And he points his finger a very great deal. Something I never do. Because pointing makes people feel uncomfortable. I learned it years ago. You might actually have already noticed that if I ever say point one or firstly, I close the point of my finger with my thumb. Um, uh, um, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a standard body language thing. Pointing does make people feel uncomfortable. So it's always point one like that. Um, all politicians know this, except Donald Trump. Pointing makes people feel uncomfortable. Um, and he has some very particular mannerisms. He waves his black Bible around a lot. And he pronounces the name Jesus with a very pronounced emphasis on the first syllable. Jesus! Jesus! He would be an easy preacher to lampoon. But my point is this. Billy Graham, he was a competent preacher... But he wasn't a brilliant preacher. Vast numbers of people didn't come to faith in Jesus Christ because of spectacular intellectual insight or a brilliantly articulate man speaking great eloquence. He's not really a particularly good preacher. He just wasn't. Um, vast numbers of people came to faith in Jesus Christ through him because he was an evangelist and an extraordinarily gifted evangelist. And we need to understand how that gifting works. It's not a gifting I've got. And I've been aware of that almost immediately since the time of my conversion. I have other giftings, but what does it mean spiritually to be an evangelist? Well, it was God's pleasure to use this particular servant in a very particular way. It was as though God was speaking to me personally. I heard God talk to me. God was speaking <laughs> directly to me. Evangelists present the gospel facts 
with the authority of God, and people experience God's authority as they hear God's message explained. That's what evangelists do. And people, unconverted people, convert. Now, Billy Graham understood that gift, and he honored it. He didn't try to be something other than God had made him. And he worked with the gift that God had given him. And one of the decisions that he made was that he believed in the power of the Bible as God's word, and he believed in the power of the Holy Spirit as God's presence, and that the Holy Spirit, he could simply trust the Spirit to apply God's word to people's hearts as he trusted those two facts. And no preacher who departs from those two facts can expect to bear fruit for God. Um, that's spiritually thinking. Let's think about this theologically. Um, it's a slightly different way of approaching uh, the, the, what we're talking about. Billy, as a young man, decided intellectually that biblical infallibility was right. He agreed doctrinally, and he trusted that doctrine. The infallibility of Scripture is the belief that the Bible is true and completely true, trustworthy and right with respect to all matters of faith, salvation, the gospel, doctrine, Christian life. The Bible is completely trustworthy as a guide to the Christian with respect to salvation through faith in Jesus Christ, what the Christian life will look like, and and the doctrine includes the idea that the Bible cannot fail to accomplish this its purpose. Now, as a Protestant denomination, we as Anglicans, we, for, we are formally believers in the doctrine of the infallibility of Holy Scripture. Article 6 of our 39 Articles of Religion says, Holy Scripture containeth all things necessary to salvation. So that... Whatsoever is not read therein, nor may be proved thereby, is not to be required of any man, that is to say any person, that it should be believed as an article of the faith, or be thought requisite or necessary to salvation. Um, I believe in the doctrine of biblical infallibility because the Bible has that own self-conscious understanding of itself. It, it articulates that truth clearly in a number of places. You cannot add or subtract to the commandments of the Lord. You cannot add or subtract to the gospel except that you are now working against God uh, and that your ministry will then become, essentially, satanic when you add to what God has said or detract from it. Now, biblical infallibility is different to the doctrine of biblical inerrancy, which may be defined as the belief that the Bible is true and completely true and totally without contradictions or errors with respect to everything that is presented in it as, as, as fact, that, that it is authoritative with respect to all facts recorded or mentioned, whether they be scientific, geographic, historical, or whatever. 
that it is completely without error, contradiction in every conceivable way. I don't think that this is a claim that the Bible makes about itself. Indeed, I think that it is probably a claim that is tangential to the Bible's declared agenda. The Bible, as far as I'm concerned, is right about the things it wants to be right about. And that every passage makes a point, and that that point is right. But God has not given us a dictated a historical context-independent rule book such that a distant and unknowable God simply demands obedience to the book. No, rather, he has given us a set of inspired contextual documents that need to be interpreted in community and in living relationship with the Father through the Son. So it's quite a different thing. But I will let you, uh, I mean, these, these two little phrases open up a whole world of theological thought and debate. I'll invite you to ponder this question. I sit loose to what I see as extreme forms of biblical inerrancy. Um, I'm quite happy with the idea that there may be historical um, facts, scientific misunderstandings, or just plain contradictions in God's word. I sit loose to extreme forms of biblical inerrancy, but I do not believe that we as Christians have the freedom to depart from biblical infallibility. Um, that we don't have that freedom. Uh, this is the Bible's understand, own understanding of itself. Billy Graham assumed this truth to be true, and he was vindicated in that belief. By the, by the outpouring of God's Holy Spirit on his work, that it bore fruit. As he preached the gospel, vast numbers of people came to faith in Jesus Christ. So why did people listen to Billy Graham? Why did people hear God's voice as they listened to Billy? Well, when you hear statements like that, there seems to be something very unexpected, otherworldly, um, um, very um, bizarre even that people should hear God's voice in their hearts as they listen to Billy with their ears. But actually, when you think about it, that's what he was made for and it's what we are made for too. We are all created in the image and likeness of God. In other words, we are all created to represent God and as believers in Jesus, conformed to, to, to the image of God through Christ and filled with the Spirit, that's what we all do. Not all of us, to be sure, are evangelists. Not all of us with that particular gifting. But certainly all of us, in one way or another, as human beings filled with the Spirit, it shouldn't surprise any of us that if we ever speak the wisdom of God, or the truth of God. It shouldn't surprise us that people hear that as coming from God. Um, um, uh, I, um, when, you know, when I hear God speaking to me, it is very often through fellow Christians. Um, not the only way that God speaks to me, but very often through fellow Christians. Um, very occasionally, maybe even ordained ones. Um, 
but this is our God, the God who speaks. The God who speaks through human beings. The God who speaks perfectly in perfection through his Son, the man, Christ Jesus. And so to him be the glory, both now and forever. Amen.